The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of music and the chance to worship with voice in that manner. It is a sweet thing and gives us a chance to lift up to you praise and have our hearts stirred. You are good. And yes, we adore you. And as part of your goodness now, Lord, would you open your word to us and teach us. Shepherd us through what is in some ways a complicated passage. Will you help us to understand it and in particular understand what it means to us today. We adore you and we look to you for your your guiding hand. Will you use this word this morning, yours, your word, to build up your church and to bring honor to your name. We pray that always, but I want to ask particularly this morning that you you would build us up and you would give us rest. You would give us the sweet assurance that this passage offers. Encourage us, please. So make clear your word, build your church, honor your name. That's what we ask you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Christian lives here in this world as an exile, an outsider who is not embraced. And one of the difficult aspects of being ostracized in this way is that sometimes, eventually, we will face hostility, even persecution, suffering. That's the word used in the last two verses that we've looked at in 1 Peter chapter 3. It shows up in each of those places. Peter's been real honest and quite blunt with us about that. We've seen it often throughout this book. Suffering. But in addition to potential suffering, which is potential in lots of ways for us and reality for many Christians in the world today, we're remembering that on this particular day, But in addition to potential suffering, there's another unpleasant aspect of being outsiders. The sense of looking like a fool, like a failure. And the sense of embarrassment that often goes along with that. Perhaps you've experienced this sort of thing if you've lived or worked through or tried to communicate, traveled maybe in a a foreign country or foreign context. You're there... But without being at home in the language or really understanding what's going on all around, do you try to force out what is essentially baby talk and little children laugh at you? They they mock you even for how you sound and how you look so ignorant. And so you learn to keep your mouth shut and to watch life as it goes on all around you, but to kind of stay out of it. You're really there, but you're not a part of it. The world all around you is having a good time. It's carrying on as normal, and it's living and relating, and you are alone and isolated. That's the life of a resident alien, kind of living on the fringes, even if you're right in the middle. And that can be our experience, too, as Christians here in the lost world. The world barely looks at us. And if it does consider us, it looks at us as losers. People who have embraced a a failed vision. Ones who are on the wrong side of history. 
trapped in a narrow and outdated dead-end worldview, while the rest of the world all around us courageously presses on into new territory, advances. Put that in quotes. Courageously presses on, leaves us behind, stuck in the past. Glanced at, perhaps, but ignored, laughed at, maybe. Well, that's what our passage today invites us into, to, to consider how to live, what it's like to live like that, as exiles of that sort in the middle of the world. But really the passage isn't focusing on that. It's when we are there, what does it tell us about what Christ is doing in us and through us? This is what, what the passage brings to us when we live in days that are like those of Noah, and it should be informative to us and I think encouraging, not because it points out what's wrong, but because it points out Christ and what he's doing in us. That's what we're going to think about today in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. But really they exist in the, in the, the, the larger context of this whole paragraph. So I'm going to read the whole paragraph again like I did last week, but focusing just on 19 and 20 and how it presents for us the days of Noah and Christ at work in them. This is 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read the paragraph and then make two observations from it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. First Peter chapter 3. Again, we'll focus only on verses 19 and 20. I'm going to draw two observations from them. Here's the first. In the midst of the disobedient world, Christ is with us, speaking through us. In the midst of the disobedient world, Christ is with us, speaking through us. Now, as we unpack this point, we're going to have to deal with a number of details here that are sometimes confusing and have sometimes led people into a, a variety of different misunderstandings. There's no way I'm going to be able to deal with all of the misunderstandings. If you read some commentaries on this section, sometimes the, sec, the, the amount of pages dealing with the mistakes are far longer than the amount of pages dealing with the accuracies. There's a lot of stuff here. I'm only going to deal with the details that actually help us understand what he, Peter is actually getting at, what he's actually saying. This passage is a continuation of verse 18, which we looked at last week, which in isolation, we noticed, it presents to us the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, Christ substituting in for us, but in its context, in the context of what comes before and what follows after, what it's giving us is Christ as a model for us. 
Christ, one who is as the righteous one, suffered so that the unrighteous might be saved, giving us Christ as a model. And what 19 and 20 are actually doing in the context are giving us a second model, Noah. And what Noah's day resembles, how Noah's day resembles our day, and what Christ was doing in Noah, what Christ is doing in us. So we realize the larger context what's actually going on here. It prevents us from making some of the mistakes of just looking at some of these verses in isolation and getting misled. Our situation is similar to Noah's. Christ at work in us is similar to how he was with Noah. That, that's what this is presenting to us. Verse 18 ends, Christ was made alive in the spirit, that is, in the spirit realm. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed, or preached. And literally, verse 19 says, in which also he went. Here's something else he did spiritually in the spirit realm. So there are two things being discussed here, one in verse 18 and one in verse 19. Two things not in sequence. This is one of the main misconceptions that we have to clear up about this passage. Because it's very easy to read, and people often do read 18 and 19 and 20, and they think there's a chronological sequence going on here. And when you think like that, it, it gets you into cascading questions over time and cascading problems, and it leaves people often at the very end saying, like, wow, this is totally confusing. How do you chart that out? But actually, it's not that confusing because this isn't sequence. It's two things about Christ in the spirit realm. One in verse 18. And also, here's something else he did spiritually in Noah's days and in all the days that are like Noah's, days like ours. Christ is made alive in the spirit realm and also in the spirit realm in that spiritual sense he went from heaven and proclaimed to the spirits, to those who were in prison, and that is the spirits who are now in prison, as some translations helpfully add in to, to clarify. No, Jesus did not go into prison himself. They're people who are now in prison, right now. The human spirits, their bodies have not yet been raised. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. But there are people who are in this place that is the place where everybody who dies not believing in Jesus goes. Euphemistically, he calls it prison here. Theologians elsewhere call it like the, the temporary hell, the intermediate hell. This is the place where people who have died not believing in Christ are right now. They're spirits, not their bodies. There are spirits there who are there even though Christ preached to them. They perished. That's an important point we're going to come back to later. They were there, though they were preached to by Christ, when? Verse 20. Not because, your translation might have a footnote that clarifies this, the word is when. Now, it is because they did not believe in Christ, but it's, but it's when, at the time that they formerly disobeyed in the days of Noah. All this long time, those people, it says, formerly, prior to their imprisonment, they disobeyed 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So, a lot of tricky details there. Let me try to put that all together in a more straightforward way. Christ came down from heaven and preached to them. All that time while the ark was being built. And they disobeyed him. They rejected him all that long time while the ark was being built. They spurned him, and because of that, they went to prison where they are being kept for the final judgment. Christ. Christ was there spiritually. Not bodily. Spiritually he was there, preaching. They heard. They rejected him. How did he preach, and how did they hear if he wasn't there bodily speaking? He was preaching through Noah. Peter touches on this again in his second letter, in 2 Peter. He tells a very similar story with some different emphasis, but there he calls Noah a herald, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was there physically preaching, and Christ was there spiritually preaching through him. This is very similar to what we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where the spirit of Christ is said to be at work in the Old Testament prophets. Here the spirit of Christ is at work in that Old Testament preacher, Noah. The spirit of Christ is preaching through Noah to a people who here for a long time disobey and go to prison. They perish. That's the situation that these verses are describing. So seeing that situation, there's more to come, which we'll come to in the second point, but we stop there for a moment and there's something here, some things here that Peter's audience and we should notice and be encouraged by. It might seem small, but I think there are some helpful things here. All up to this point, if, if you just like take your finger and you like look back through 1 Peter, we are now about a page and a half, depending on how your typeset works, about a page and a half into this repeated theme. We are to live in ways that make us witnesses. We are to live, we are to conduct ourselves, whether it's with the authorities or our employers or with our spouses or with one another, with those who hate us and persecute us, with those who just ignore us. In all those ways, we are to live so that people will see us and will say, that's really interesting. How do you do that? And when they ask, we give an answer for the hope that's in us. We've been seeing it now for a page and a half or so. And all through those pages, there's lots of commands to us, some instructions, promises of future blessings, calls to be subject to authorities and not fear what's fearful, endure suffering in light of the gospel. And you could read all of that, get it, understand it, and come away from it ready to speak, mindset on God, but miss something that's right here, really for the first time. The Spirit of Christ went down from heaven to Noah's construction site, so to speak, and stood there with Noah preaching in and through Noah. 
as Noah, all that long time, so to speak, worked out these various commands, lived in a way that was illustrative of something else, displayed a hope and spoke about it. All this long time, God was there communing with Noah. You read Genesis 6 and 7, the account, you see God speaking personally with Noah often, telling him what's going on, telling him what to do. He's there communing with him, relating to him all through that time. And this significantly changes Noah's perspective on what's going on and his encounter with the world. Can you imagine how that changes all of what we've said so far, all of what we've seen over the last page and a half? It is one thing for a dad to say to a little boy as he turns off the light, now, go to sleep. There's nothing to be afraid of here. I'm right down the hallway in the living room. You're okay. Don't fear. Is that all true? Of course it's true. There's nothing in the room. He's right down the hallway. Boy's safe. So why does the little boy say, please stay with me, stay with me, lie down with me at least until I fall asleep? Why does he do that? Maybe he's stalling, I don't know. But assume he's got something else. Why does he want him there? Because there's something different about dad being with. I know you're right over there, but I want you with. I want to feel your body heat. I want to hear your breath. I want to feel that. With is what's reassuring. Christ was with Noah. Not only up in heaven reigning over all of this, which could be the impression that you get very clearly up to this point. Christ was not up there only, but he went from heaven right down to with Noah. He was with him there in the midst of all that utterly disobedient and rebellious and frightening and shaming and confusing and frustrating world. And he's with you too, Christian, right here, no less. More so even, because this is the age of the Spirit. When he doesn't just dwell with, he dwells in. His Spirit indwells every single one of us, never to depart, but always to be communed with. He is with you wherever and whatever it is that you're going to encounter. And when you encounter him, when you commune with him in his word and in prayer, when you set your mind on the things that are above, his spirit renews you and gives you a very different perspective on all that's around and all that's coming at you because he is with you. I say that and I kind of press on that a little bit. You, I know that sounds like, well, duh. I mean, I tell you, Christian, I am certain of this. Every time you are stopped by fear or stopped by disappointment, I'm not saying when you fear, I'm saying when you stop by fear or you're stopped by disappointment or you're stopped by discouragement or you're stopped by despair, you have forgotten that God is with you. Not intellectually, you've emotionally forgotten God is with you. Can you imagine Noah, this is moving towards the second thing this passage shows, you can imagine Noah standing there at a construction yard, hammer in hand, just beating a nail, and this group comes at him. Oh my goodness, 
Oh my goodness, I am vastly outnumbered by people who strongly disagree with me and think I'm an idiot. And the Lord God Almighty says, don't worry about this. I'm here. And in fact, I got this. That changes everything. That changes everything for you. He is with you. And also realize this, he is with you to speak through you. He's got this. This is what's actually emphasized here in this passage at, the, at this point. He did not come actually to Noah just to encourage Noah in Noah's assignment. He came to Noah to preach through Noah. The I got this is why he went. He came to preach through Noah and you could easily, through the last page and a half, hear all these different commands. You live this way. You don't do that. You be ready to speak. And you could hear all that and you could say, I feel like I am under assignment, like I'm on mission, which we are. But you could hear that as you, and I'm under, and I have to, you. And maybe what this is reshaping for us is maybe you here now realize, oh, you know what? That's actually Christ with me to speak through me. It's not actually up to me. It's not actually on me. It's not actually even my main assignment. This passage actually doesn't even say Noah said anything. We know he did from Second Peter, and that's how Noah was known by Peter and by Peter's audience. But this passage emphasizes Christ preaching. This is actually Christ's assignment, Christ's mission. We sometimes get this idea that the Great Commission is an assignment to me. Well, it is, sort of, but it's not my assignment that he comes with me to help me with. It's his assignment that he invites me along on. He's the shepherd seeking out his sheep, not me. It's his work. He's come to preach. And in a very real way, he says, I'm not only with you, I got this. And he engages with the world. Now, are we to engage? Are we to speak for a page and a half? Yes, yes, yes. For a page and a half, of course. But even when our days are like those of Noah and we look around and see all kinds of stuff everywhere, our situation is not nearly as extreme as his and not nearly as extreme as Christians are experiencing in other places in the world. Let's be, let's be real about that. But even when things are challenging, even when we feel ridiculed and left out and, and isolated or perhaps persecuted and made to suffer, even then, Christ in us is with us to speak through us. And we are called to step forward recognizing that actually he's the one speaking. He's the one engaging. Through me, yes. But he's the one driving this. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's the shepherd in pursuit of his sheep. 
Now, why, as I make a last little point about that before we move on to the second observation, why does he make this point about just these people who were in prison from the days of Noah? And this point about Christ preaching through Noah? Here's something that I think is just a small sub-point of this Christ has it, Christ, you know, I got this, Christ is the one preaching. Here's just a little sub-point of that, which a couple of us, you need to hear this. We all do, but a couple of us in particular. Because there there are sometimes, I engage with some people here, and you talk with me, and maybe all of us kind of feel this way sometimes, but you feel like an utter failure in your witnessing. Okay? Eight people got on the boat. Only eight people got on the boat after Christ himself preached for years. He said, I got this. And maybe what we usually expect is, oh, watch this. This is going to be something right here. Revival is going to break out. And it didn't. It did not. Now, there's a reason for that. We're coming to that in the second point. But it did not. They disobeyed, rejected, turned around, disobeyed, rejected, and scorned, turned around, disobeyed, and rejected, and scorned for years. Christ himself. We cannot look at this account and say, like some of us often do about our own accounts or our own ministries or those of our church or those of other people, we can't look at this and say, man, Noah blew it. If Noah had only done something, if he'd emphasized this or de-emphasized that, if he'd been a little more persuasive or a little more aggressive or a little more assertive or a little more kind or whatever, then, no, we can't say that. Christ preached to the world off the lips of Noah for years, and eight people got on the boat. And the rest are in prison right now. They heard it from Jesus, and they rejected it. He did not change the situation by preaching. We could not have changed the situation by doing it a little bit better. So what we need to to realize from this is when Christ comes to be with us to encourage us, and Christ says, I got this, and steps in front, do we still have responsibility? Yes. But we should realize that successful witnessing, somebody told me this definition a long time ago, and it sticks in my mind. Write this down, let it stick in your mind. Successful witnessing is taking the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. So let this be encouraging to you, not in your non-witnessing, not if you don't take the initiative, not in the power of the Spirit. This shouldn't be an encouragement in that situation. But when it is that you step forward and speak and everybody says, no, thank you, that is not certain evidence that you are a failure you needed something wrong. Christ preached, and all of those people went to hell. The first thing we draw from the first part of this passage, 
Here we are in the days of Noah. And in a world like that, Christ is with us to speak through us. And he will accomplish all of his purposes. Which gets us to the second point. The powerful patience of God will certainly save all of God's people. The powerful patience of God will certainly save all of God's people. Pick up in the middle of verse 20. The time when these unbelievers formerly did not obey was when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In other words, that period of time is kind of the end of Genesis 6 and Genesis 7 into Genesis 7. We don't know how long that period was. It doesn't say. Nothing in the Bible does. People who have tried to build an ark like Noah would have, modern people, have done it in about three years. Other people say maybe more like five. It doesn't say exactly, so we don't know. But years. And all those years, Noah built, and he gathered the animals and the food. He was building this great big boat on dry land, and it must have seemed crazy and laughable. Other non-biblical writings tell us that people mocked Noah and treated him as a kook, which is not hard to imagine. They would have had no tolerance for a righteous man like Noah, first off. And then what he was doing made no sense. And if they stopped to listen to him for a second, what he was talking about constantly was very off-putting. The world is under God's wrath and judgment is coming. And there is only one single way to avoid that wrath and judgment. Nope. And the people turned away and carried on while Christ through Noah preached. And God's patience waited. Patience is kind of, it's actually personified here to give it a little bit more of a, of a forward emphasis. He was provoked, and yet he didn't act. His patience came forward and held back his wrath. He was patient and long-suffering, and he waited God in patience waiting. What was he patiently waiting for? And once again, as often in this passage and often in the Bible, we need to kind of check and compare what does the text actually say to what have we heard or what have we thought of or what have we assumed? What does the text, and actually both of Peter's letters, what do they actually emphasize here? There's a similar passage about God's patience in 2 Peter chapter 3, making the same point. Peter's letters are very similar. But here, if you just look at the situation and think about Noah, what you see is Noah, a man working and speaking, preaching day after day the same message to people who once again don't have any time for him and don't, don't embrace it, don't agree, and don't respond. But he does it again in the next day, in the day after we see there that man's patience, which we should have. We should have a patience like Noah, for sure. Pleading with people despite the response now. Because we don't know. And we, we can see the response today, but we don't know what the response is going to be tomorrow or next month. We don't know if something's going to happen that's going to change their perspective on what we're saying. 
And so Noah, very patiently, is waiting in hope for his listeners. Maybe, 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 and we should have that kind of patience and that kind of persistence. Who knows? But God's patience is different. We often think of it just like Noah, as if God is patient in hope, just like Noah is patient in hope, as if God is saying, maybe somebody will believe me tomorrow. Maybe, who knows? That's not God's patience. What is God patiently waiting for? For the ark to be finished. Like a hungry person patiently waiting while dinner is being prepared, Noah waited, God waited while the ark was being prepared. He's waiting for the ark. God knows what we human observers don't. God knows that nobody but Noah and his seven family members are getting on that ark. The door is open. The preaching is going forth from Christ's spirit himself. But God already said in Genesis 6, verses 17, 18, 19, and several other places, that every living thing of all flesh is going to perish in the flood. Only these eight will be saved. That's what God said because that's what God chose. This very quickly leads us right back to the doctrine of election, which we've seen several times in this book. And it leads us very quickly to the doctrine of reprobation, which we've also seen in this book. Very different than election. If you want more on that, I would encourage you to go back to the website, listen to the sermon on chapter 2, verse 8. Briefly summarized, God chooses who and when and how, and so God knows. And he knows no one will listen to Noah. No one will listen to Christ and Noah. They will despise and reject him and the one way that he saves, not because physically they can't do otherwise. The boat's right there, and the message is going forth, and they hear it for years. It's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. The world does not want God's righteousness that that herald of righteousness announced. It does not want his one way to be saved from wrath and made righteous. And so it disobeys and carries on, as Jesus described Noah's day, they carry on with the party, eating and drinking, using the very goods that God's gracious gifts provide to avoid him. And they carry on marrying and giving in marriage, embracing the very image of the love of Christ and his church while wanting nothing to do with Christ and nothing to do with his church. The world is disobedient and unbelieving. It sees and it hears and it rejects, provoking God's anger. And God's patience waits. Maybe a day, 
Maybe a thousand years, which are just like a day, God's view. But all along, he is patient with his people, not wanting any to perish, but wanting all eight of them to be safely saved before the day of the Lord comes. He waits for the ark to be built so as to safely secure every single one of those that he's determined to save. He waits in heaven with his hand on the faucet, watching day by day the construction progressing. And when the ark is finished, right immediately afterwards, almost on the very heels of the last person to enter the ark, he turns the handle. Genesis 7, verse 13, on the very same day that they went in, the water came in a rush. Verse 7 puts it, they went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. He smears the last bit of pitch, it dries, they step in, and it says, God closed them in and turned on the water. Just a few of them Eight persons in all. Just like God said would be the case. And in the ark they were brought safely through the water of the flood. That's the end of verse 20. The language there adds a little bit of emphasis here. The word for brought safely through, it's a compound word from the root word saved, in the ark they were saved through or into the ark. They were saved into the ark through the water. The water came to destroy and the ark saved. Let's pull all that together and say, what does that mean for us? We've got a few things to say about that here, but I think it's probably worth saying like, Just take a breath. If you think about the judgment of the flood, it is astonishing and sobering. And meant to click with us. Because we can picture the flood. That's why he uses this image of, of Noah. We, we can picture that. We understand. All this time there's preaching going on. All this time there's an option open and nobody wants it, nobody wants it, nobody wants it. And then suddenly there isn't anymore. And the water comes and every living thing dies. If, if you're a feeling person at all, it kind of makes you say like, oh, really? Oh, man. And then if you think for a second, I think I know some people in that group. I didn't know his day, but the, the group of that, that group today, I think I know some people. I think I love some people. I think I care about some people there. Would there be not another way? And, and God says, no. There was a way for years. And my son himself announced it. I am a merciful God and slow to anger, abounding in grace and mercy and love. And I am not eager that anyone should perish, but I am not eternally 
willing to look the other way at rebellion. And that's what it is. Years and years and years, yes, but not forever. That's sobering. That is sobering. We should acknowledge that and just kind of take a breath and say, and that kind of pushes us back maybe into the first point about we're sent here to speak and be witnesses in Christ through us. And so we should engage in all the ways that Peter talked about, engage with the world from our perspective in the hopes that they will believe. But let's pull us together and think about a couple other things here. We're called to preach to everyone, like Peter's been telling us to, because while the doctrine of election is true, from our side, we have no idea who that's about. And so we are indiscriminate, just like Noah was, and constant and patient. This doctrine gives us great hope that some will hear, but it doesn't narrow it down. We've talked about this before numerous times in this book. It doesn't make us narrow down to, to try to like preach only to certain people. We have no idea who that is. So we preach, and we love, and we broadcast, and we pray. We don't know who the elect are. We just preach and pray indiscriminately and we patiently wait. But we sometimes mistakenly assume that's exactly how God is approaching all this too, and he's not. To use the words of Jesus in John 10, I've already mentioned them. He's the good shepherd and he has sheep in all the nations and he knows exactly who those sheep are. And so from our perspective, what is this broadcasting indiscriminate search? It can seem very daunting from his perspective, it is a particular hunt. He knows who his sheep are and he's after them. And he's very, very effective. So many hear the words of the human preacher and we should broadcast far and wide. We should call them all, but few are chosen and so few actually come. Just eight in Noah's day. God waits patiently in the middle of a world that rejects him and stands condemned, and he patiently lets the world carry on, patiently endures the scorn until he has safely secured every single one of those sheep he's chasing. And then the end will come. So we should look at missions and we should realize, we should look at evangelism and outreach, and we should realize that I have a wide-reaching responsibility, but I do this in great hope because Christ knows who he's pursuing and that all will work, it all will succeed. The end then will come. But in the meantime, another reality we have to reckon with, in the meantime, we still live here as exiles in the world and still endure suffering and persecution, or maybe just embarrassment and a sense of being an outsider not fully embraced. And how long, O oh Lord, rises up in us. I once had a, a classroom situation where a teacher was, was explaining this point, and he said, now I know you're Americans, 
And that just rung hollow for you because you've got a tea time tomorrow at an awesome golf course and your, your daughter is expecting her first child in six months and then after that you've got and after that you've got. So you actually really don't want this to end right now. So I just said you have to endure suffering or maybe only embarrassment and how long rises up out of you. It really doesn't. And then he said, but if you lived in a village in the middle of Africa where the Muslims were coming back this afternoon to kill all your children if you don't convert to Islam, you would be praying, how long, O Lord? But you're not because you don't. And that's true. We're not really feeling it like that. Because we don't really live that, but a bunch of the world does, and maybe one day we will. We live in a really weird time in Christian history where we're not the majority, we're not the people in power, but we were relatively recently, and there's a lot of coattails from that, and so we're relatively embraced. But for most of history, and even today in most of the world, that is strongly not the case. I did not plan this passage for this day, the, the persecuted church day, that just, you know, God did it, really. But there's a point here that we need to consider. It was prayed earlier, just a, a mention in the prayer about the, the Uduk folks. Some of us were here some time back when we heard Morris, who at the time was the, lead, the, elder, the lead elder of the Uduk congregation that is a partner with us here. And he talked about how they fled from Sudan, from the Blue Nile region to Ethiopia, the refugee camps, being chased down by the Muslims. And he said they would kill people by driving nails into their heads. We tried to get away. Yeah, no kidding. Morris communicated that as best he could in his English, but there's a whole lot more under that, isn't there? If people you know are being killed that way, you are trying to get away, and you are praying, how long, O oh Lord? Why don't you just end this? Why don't you come back? Why don't you turn the water on, for crying out loud, quickly? That rises up. Sometimes. And it also rises up in us sometimes when we just face the ordinary suffering of life in the fallen world. Never mind being a Christian, just being a person. As you look at illness and death and accidents and heartache, and you just say, oh my goodness, this place is busted. Will not anybody fix it? Lord, how long? And his answer is, long enough to save all my sheep to bring all of my beloved children to repentance. I am patient with you. Wanting all of you to come to repentance, to save every single one of you, to secure safely in my hand all of my children that long and not a second more. But until then, I patiently hold back my judgment and I will be with you to encourage you. But you have to wait. And we do want him to patiently wait that long. We do. It's hard, but we do because that's how you got in the ark after all. 
patiently waited long enough for me. And one day, if you can see through the pain and you can lift up your eyes and get a perspective of the future, one day when the full multitude of the vast people of God is finally gathered together in a world washed clean. We're all there shining like the sun. We will revel in the glorious wonder of his grace. Grace that wove together this tapestry of all of these people from all these tongues and tribes and nations and across all of these eras of history is marvelous, wonderful grace wove together all of that tapestry over time and we will praise his patience that did indeed prolong the pain but brought together all those people, all those image bearers fixed now and glorious The family will be brought back together because God patiently waited. And his glory will be magnified and our delight for eternity made full. God's powerful patience will certainly save every single one of his people. And for that, we will be thankful. Until then, we wait with him on a mission that's his. Believing that. Let's pray. Father, will you help? You help us to believe and to hope. And will you accomplish your mission? Gather in the nations, Lord, every single person chase down your sheep and capture them. And use us effectively, Lord. Peter preached in Acts, calling people to repentance to hasten the day of your coming. And pray that we would be effective agents that call people to repentance. We may hasten the day. So Lord, in hope we look to you be with us and encourage us and move us forward. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.